And that also means that Adam and Eve are the priest. They are the high priest of this place. Because the only people that are allowed in the temples are the priests. And if they're allowed all the way into the Holy of Holies with God, well, only the high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies. So God has created them to be high priests. He also tells them to work until the garden. To work until the garden. Now, the work until the garden is the same words of God that he uses to tell the Levites to work until the temple, their tabernacle. Except in those, it's the Hebrew word is translated work until in Genesis, the creation account. But in um, Exodus, when he creates the tabernacle and puts the priests in it, it tells them to keep and guard it. But it's the same Hebrew words. The work until the garden is the same thing as keeping and guarding it. But it also is priestly functions. By commanding the work until, he's using priestly terms. But here's the other cool thing. These words are used of worship. All throughout the Bible, these two words are used to describe worship. But what's interesting is they're never used of singing songs to God. That's praise. All throughout the Bible, they're used of worship. And all through the Bible, God describes worship as obeying him and working in the kingdom of God, doing ministry, loving God and loving other people in an active day-by-day sense. So when you go to work and you're loving God and you're loving others and you're bringing order to everything, then you are worshiping God. This is why the creation account at the end of each day it says there was evening and there was morning. You're like, wait a minute, God, you got the wrong way. Morning comes first. Well, in the Jewish way of thinking, evening comes first and then morning because that's the way God did it. So for the Jews, the day begins at sunset in the evening and the day ends in morning when the sun rises. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Well, yeah, but our day also begins in the middle of the night, at midnight. So then even at least there's like a, uh, something's changing, right? So you're like, but why did God say that? Because in the original Hebrew, the word evening creates, is, has the idea of unordered, unorderly. And the word morning has the idea of ordered. What God is saying is on day one, there was unorderliness, evening, and then there was order, morning. Because what did he do? He ordered the light, and then he ordered the sky, and he ordered the sea, and he ordered the land. So each day he's bringing order to each day. When you're in the middle of the dark and you're banging your knees on the bedpost and tripping over toys and clothes and that kind of stuff, it's dark. And so everything feels unorderly. But you turn on the light in the morning and now there's order because now you can see and everything is in its proper place. But it didn't feel like it was in its proper place in the evening, at night, when there's no light. And so what God is doing is he begins each day with unorderliness and he ends each day by bringing light into the world and bringing order. And then he tells you to do the same. How you are to live your life as priests. You go out into the world and you enter into the chaos and the darkness of the world. And right now it's very chaotic and dark in a lot of ways. And you bring order to the day. We can't order the world overnight. And we can't order the world without God. And the, order, the world will not be completely ordered until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what I can do is I can go to bed and I can ask myself the question, is the world just a little bit more orderly and have a little bit more light and life in it because I, this day, or did I bring more chaos and more dysfunctionality and more brokenness? If I can just end each day saying it's just a little bit more orderly 
and a little bit more life and a little bit more light because of my actions, then you are functioning as priests. You're functioning as rulers and subduers. This is what God is communicating, that he wants you to join him. And so by telling you to maintain the garden, you're functioning as a priest. You're maintaining order. You're bringing light. In fact, every day when they went into the tabernacle, they were going to the tabernacle and they were to place the, make sure the bread of life, the bread that was on the table of showbread, that it was nice and neat and orderly. And then they were to go to the other place and light the candles, or the, or the candle um, of the, the menorah, the seven-branched candle, because it was a symbolic reminder that this is what they're supposed to do in life and everybody's life to redeem it. And so this is what God is doing. Here is the final conclusion of the creation account. God then puts them in the garden. Now, we know the garden is a limited space because we're told that there's a fence around it and we're told that there's a gate. And when Adam and Eve get kicked out of it, they're outside the garden. So the garden is a limited space. We know that being outside the garden is not good because they get exiled out of the garden and that's not good. And we're all outside the garden now and that's not good. But he also tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And they're like, okay, if you're fruitful and multiply enough, eventually you're going to be very crowded in that garden with all those little babies. And you're going to be like this at family reunions, not moving around. And you're like, well, that's kind of restrictive. Is there a cap on being fruitful and multiply? No, there isn't. But he also tells them to work until the garden. Well, why do they have to work until a garden that freely produces everything they need without work? And the logical conclusion is that the garden is a limited space and being outside the garden is not good, but they're told to work until a garden that doesn't need to be worked and tilled, and they're told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, then what are they supposed to do with the garden? Expand it. That's their job. God created this template of what creation is supposed to look like. He created creation, and he put all the building blocks there, vegetation, the sun, the moon, the star, water, life-giving plants, the soil, everything. And then he creates this garden where fruit is produced and it freely gives them everything they want. And everything is good and everything is life. And then he says, go and rule and subdue. Make all of creation look like this template. And as the garden expands, as we expand the temple, as we expand the tabernacle, I will expand with you. And we together will go out into creation and we will make all of creation look like this garden. That is their task. That is their task. And so this is our primary purpose as humans. This is our primary purpose as humans. He then puts two trees in there. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is a tree that produces life. And we don't fully understand what this tree of life is, but we do know that they're not allowed access to the tree after they leave. So it's something more unique than every other tree. It's something so special and unique that we've lost access to it, unlike all the other trees that we have not lost access to. Yet at the same time, God says we must kick them out of the garden so they may not eat of the tree of life and live forever. You're like, wait a minute, is Tuck Everlasting actually real? Like, is there something that will actually give you everlasting life? I don't know. Is it metaphorical language to describe the relationship with God? That the tree is a symbol of the relationship with God. And now that they're cut off from God, they're cut off from life and eternal life. 
Yes, probably, definitely. But yet he also says, or they will not die if they eat of it. So that sounds like physicality and concreteness, not just a metaphor. Don't know what to do with that. I mean, honestly, that's a giant question mark on what the tree of life really truly is in a physical, metaphysical kind of a sense and what role it plays in life. But the other tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil is just another way of saying wisdom, the tree of wisdom. And God says, don't eat of it. And you're like, wait a minute. Doesn't God tell us to have wisdom? He was pleased with Solomon who asked for wisdom. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. James says, if anybody asks for wisdom, God is good to give it to you. Jesus is be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. The Bible constantly affirms wisdom. In fact, wisdom is the thing that we're to desire and seek after and emulate more than any other attribute, probably other than love. But love is not something that we ask for. Love is something that we're connected to God, and then we do it. But wisdom is something that we pursue and we, we function as. So why would God say, don't, well, I don't want you to have a wisdom? Well, who are you supposed to get wisdom from? God. If you go to the tree, where are you getting the wisdom from? The tree. The tree represents an alternate source than God. The tree represents an alternate relationship than God. The tree represents your ability to do what goes contrary to the will of God. You need to have a choice. Love is not real without a choice. If there is no choice to love you and not love you, then my love is not legitimate. I need to have the choice to not love you so that when I choose to love you, it's real. It's real. Because despite the attractiveness of other options, despite the legitimacy of other options, despite the lure of other options, I still choose you. And that's real love. Because even in your relationships, you guys know that when your spouse is looking at you, there are people better attracting, more attractive than you are, more intelligent than you are, faster than you are, more romantic than you are, funnier than you are. I mean, we are not the end of all. We are not the all everything. Even in your friendships, there are people who are better friends than you are, funnier than you are, all that kind of stuff. And yet that person keeps choosing to be with you despite all these alternatives that are very attractive and maybe even superior in some sense. Because there's something that's metaphysical that connects you. And you choose to keep doing that. And that feels, that's love. That's love. God gives them a choice. Will you get wisdom from me or will you get it your way? Because the minute they choose the tree, what they're saying is, I am going to determine what is right and wrong. I'm going to do what I want. And the minute I say, I don't care about you and what you think and what you feel, I'm going to do what I want and what I think and what I feel, that's not love anymore. By an alternate source, I don't mean like you can choose every relationship with God or the tree. That's not what God is saying. It's you can choose to follow God's will, which is loving to him and a relationship, or you can choose to do what you will and what you want. And that's what you want. And, so the, and this is what we call autonomy. Autonomy is when I become a, a auto means self, and namas means law. So I'm a self-law to myself. And now I determine what is right and wrong. I determine what is truth. And I reject God's definition of right and wrong. I reject God's definition of truth. And I reject his will, and I do what I want to do. 
And that's self-law. I become a law unto myself, and I write my own law. And we call this selfishness, or we call it control. But it's basically autonomy. And so it's when I say, you know what, God, you're not right. I don't think the tree is a bad source of wisdom. In fact, I think it's good and looks beautiful and is beneficial for knowledge. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm going to do that. And so this is the choice he presents them. I have created this for you. I have put you in a good place. I have put you in a life-giving place. I have put you in an orderly place. And now I myself have entered into creation with you in order to have a relationship with you where all your needs are provided for emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, physically. And now I want you to join me in expanding the garden. But I'm going to give you the choice. Will you go my will and my path or will you go your will and your path? I'm not going to force you to expand my garden against your will. That's not loving. And I want you to do it because you actually love me, not because you're afraid of being punished or because you want a reward, because that's not loving. So God neither will force us, because that's not love, nor does he want us to follow him out of fear of punishment or rewards, because that's not loving. He joins us because he wants us, and he wants us to join him because we want him. And that's what he creates in the garden. A relationship between God humans and the land where he then says i will give you all i will give you life to the fullest and i will make your joy complete now join me in filling the earth with life and order and if you do this you will be complete you will be good and you will have life that is the purpose of humanity now, that's so important to understand. We've spent more time on this than we will anything else. Because you need to understand this because what this is, is home. This is home. The Garden of Eden. That relationship. That mission. Expanding the garden. And we ran away from home, so to speak, when we said, forget you, Dad. I'm going to do what I want to do. And we ran away. The prodigal son. The prodigal son operates on many different levels, though, but that's one of them. And we run away from home, and now we're living in this broken, fallen world, doing what we want. And when we do what we want, everything we touch breaks. And everything we touch falls apart, and everything we touch dies. And what God is now saying is, I'm going to now dedicate my entire existence, and I'm going to move heaven and hell and earth in order to redeem you back into the garden cost me my son's life to do this in order to bring you back into the garden where everything can be good again. Obviously the physical garden is not here yet but the garden of the Holy Spirit has entered into us and now we can begin to touch and build things that don't fall apart and don't rot and don't die. But that's only possible if the Holy Spirit's working through you. Yes, sometimes when we touch things they fall apart and break because we're sinners. But sometimes they thrive and produce life because the Spirit of God is working through us because we've allowed it to work through us. We'll talk about this when we get later, but a little bit of the garden is restored when the Holy Spirit enters into us. And then we're called to expand that Holy Spirit out into the world, to go out and make disciples of all people, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this is what your purpose is. 
Whether you're in the garden or out of the garden, or you have a little bit of the garden in you, your purpose in life is to go into the world and bring order and light, to bring evening to morning. And it doesn't matter what you do when you go to work. You work at General Motors making cars. You are to expand the garden there. You work in the hospitals. You are to expand the garden there. You work in the neighborhood watch block. You are to expand the garden there. You're a mother or a father. You expand the garden there. You work in the sanitation industry. You expand the garden there. You work in the banking industry. You expand the garden. That's what you're called to do. And it's not just witness to people and share Christ with them. It's to make creation good and orderly. You see, you can go to the banking industry of Chase Bank, and you can work there all day long, and you can witness to people, and people can even come to Christ. And in that way, you are expanding the garden a little bit, but you're not expanding the garden to the fullest sense of the meaning. The fullest sense of the meaning is that Chase doesn't function the way that it's supposed to function. Chase Bank is not a horribly wicked, evil thing in itself that there's nothing good about it, but it is corrupt. And it does cheat a lot of people just to make more money. Chase Bank contributed to the housing market collapsing years ago in order to make lots of money off of people's misfortunes. Chase Bank has a lot of policies that deny a lot of people of good loans, but gives a lot of other people that are corrupt and power hungry a lot of money and because it's broken. And it's not horribly evil with nothing good in it. And there's good people working in Chase Bank, but it's also corrupt and broken. And I'm not picking on Chase Bank. That's true of everything. Even my Christian school is broken, corrupt in different kinds of places. And so you're called to go there and not just witness to people and bring them to Christ, but you're to bring order to that place. You're to fight for the rights of the people who are trying to get loans, the people who have accounts with the bank. You're trying to make the bank more efficient so that it works better. So the better that it works, the more money that it can make, the more that it can benefit each other, other people in an efficient way. And this is what you're called to do. And when you're witness to people, you're not just witnessing to them so they can become saved and get out of hell and go to heaven. You're witnessing to them because they're going to become another image in the bank that will help you bring order to the bank so you're not doing it by yourself. And eventually you'll multiply. And eventually your images of God will outnumber the non-images of God and the bank will begin to change and transform. And then it will be so thriving that other people look at this and think, wow, how in the world did you build a bank that was so efficient and so beneficial to all the other people? And you're like, let me tell you about my God. And then it begins to work that way. And you do the same thing in the hospitals. The hospitals are great. They're awesome. They save so many people's lives. But we also know that higher up in the business organizations, there is a money-making thing. The insurance companies are money-making people. People do get hurt in different ways. And so are you transforming psychology? Don't just be a psychologist helping people. Be a psychologist who's writing journals, helping people think correctly about the mind and, and point them towards the biblical concept of way how the mind is supposed to work and how the body is supposed to work and relationships work. And then you, you're so in tune with God who created our minds that you get the mind better than most people do because you're connected to God. And then you write these journals that change the way people think. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you begin to better people's lives because now you can have non-Christians who can be benefiting people with the things that you've discovered in the journal. 
even if not everybody at Chase Bank becomes a Christian, they'll be using your policies in order to do loans, which will still be benefiting people in a Christian kind of way because they're Christian policies that you've implemented that non-Christians are using. And this is what God meant by expand the garden. He meant that don't just go to work and make money and all, by the way, the pastors and missionaries, they're the people doing the work of God. And you can join them when you witness to people. He means that you're all missionaries. You're a missionary in the bank. You're a missionary in the, the tech industry. You're, you're a missionary anywhere. And it's not just sharing Christ. It's changing policies. It's making things more efficient and orderly. And that way, when we do things to a more efficient, more orderly way, people look at this and they're like, wow, nobody is. That's what Joseph did. He came in and he ran the prison in a way that nobody had ever run it before. And, and it became a testimony to who God is. And it affected people's lives. And this is what God originally intended for us. One day, even if the world had never fallen and nobody had ever sinned, I am willing to bet that we still would have eventually built buildings and built cars and created computers. But if we had never fallen, everything would be good and everything would be producing life and create an orderly place. And that's what God intended. That was our mission. That's our purpose, to join God, work with him side by side, and expand the garden into every aspect of life, and every arena of life, every relationship of life, every industry of life. And that's what he's called us to. And when you get that that's our purpose, when you get that that is our meaning, then it changes the way that you look at other things. It helps give you the things that you need to get it gives you the vision and the mission and the fuel and the perseverance that you need when being a parent that day is just miserable. It's taxing. You don't know how you're going to get through the day anymore because it's so stressful. When you're in the bank and you're fighting these policies again, when you're, you're in politics and you're just like, oh my gosh, there's no hope. If, if it's just about witnessing, yeah, that's great and awesome in itself, but that's not the end all. It's about reshaping and structuring the entire universe. And that's when you realize that you can actually make a difference in every little way of what you do. It's what gets you through those days. It gets you through those days. This is your purpose. This is what God created. Now, the other reason this is very important to understand that this is your purpose and God's original intention is because you have to know what God is saving you to. So much in the Bible, so much in Christianity, we just keep talking about what God has saved us from. Oh, he saved me from that sinful life. Saved you from drugs and alcohol. He saved you from slavery. He saved you from hell. And we talk about that. And then we just think now... The goal in life is to be a good person. And that's why behaviorism is so easy to default to in our churches. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. And a lot of our message is unintentionally reduced to that. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But it's not just important what you've been saved from. It's important to know what you've been saved to. And when you have a good picture of the garden and you realize that that's the whole point of Revelation, and I saw 
the heaven and God and the temple and Jesus coming down to the earth. That's what you're being saved to. By the way, the expansion of the garden is not over with when the kingdom of God comes to earth. Because when the kingdom of God comes to the earth, God says there's two trees of life and the leaves are for the healings of the nation. This world has been ravished by sin. And when Christ comes back a second time, we have a rebuilding project. We have to restore the land that we stripped and poisoned. We have to rebuild relationships that we violated. We have to repopulate animals that we have exterminated. There is a lot of work to do when Christ comes back. And Christ isn't going to come with a magic wand and go bling. He's going to come back and he's going to destroy evil. And he's going to remove sin. And no one will sin ever again. And there will be no more evil. But then he's going to look at us and say, now join me in this rehab project. Join me in healing the nations. And then once they're healed, we're going to expand. And perhaps that's why there's a giant universe out there that's unhabitable. Because God meant us to have an eternity of expansion. Don't know. That's my guess. I think it's kind of cool. I hope God does that. But perhaps. So this is why we spend so much time on this part. Because this is home. And we have never been home. A little bit of God, the Holy Spirit, has entered into us, and we have a feeling of home, and we have a memory of home, as C.S. Lewis calls it, strange dreams. But we have never been home, and it's full of sense. Sometimes it's hard to know how to get to home, and what home will look like when we return there one day, when we really don't really look at the creation count, or we reduce the creation count to just an apologetic argument against atheism. It's more than that. It's our identity, it's who God is, and it's our relationship and our mission with him.